our study. Uh, we're just going to pick up in 1 Timothy 5 where we left off and we're studying about, of course, the widows and the characteristics of widows that can be put on the list. I just want to uh, go over those, um, the ones that we went through last in our last session just quickly as a way of reminder. A woman who can be put on the list is a woman 60 years or older. She's totally alone without support of family. Uh, she may be, she may have family, but they refuse to support her because she is a believer. Um, her life is marked by true devotion and piety to God, verse five. Her life was marked by faithfulness to her husband and children, verses nine and 10. Her life is marked by service to the saints, verse 10. She was not an idle woman. Uh, there's a theme here in 1 Timothy with regard to idleness. And um, another characteristic is she no longer has sexual desires that are so strong that they would draw her away from true devotion to Christ. We're going to talk about that more. Um, and what it means is that she's not in danger of, um, since she is not no longer married, she's not in danger of burning or be drawn away by inordinate lusts into disobedience and rejection of Christ. Now, on all these things, I want you to remember that this is a representative standard. So I don't want you to think again that if there's a widow who's 39 years old, that she's not to receive any help from the church. Or if there's a woman who was converted after a long life of sin, maybe she was converted at 50, that she could, no long, she could never be put on a list. That's not what's being taught here. What's being taught is that the women put on the list demonstrate Christian virtue. They demonstrate Christian service. They demonstrate that they're genuinely converted and they are of 60 years and above so that in a sense their passions and their desires have passed and they can devote themselves to service to Christ fully and completely. And they will not be drawn away with uh, unbiblical desires. Um, so now let's look at the widows who do not qualify. Okay, let's look at their characteristics. Widows that should not be put on the list. Those that are younger than 60 years of age. Um, in verse nine, it says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years of age. Also, women that have a family that can care for them. Okay, so in verse four, it says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that they may assist those who are widows indeed. So who should not be put on the list of widows to be helped in a permanent condition? Uh, and that is widows who are younger than 60 and widows that have a believing family 
that should and can and, and actually does provide for them. Now, why is this important? Why does he not want younger widows to be put on a list where they are taken care of, they don't have to labor, they don't have to work, they're just taken care of, okay? He's gonna give us the reasons. But before we look at those reasons, I want us to look at something else here. Um, well, let's read, um, let's read verses 11, start with 11. But refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside the previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. And then he goes on, verse 14, therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for approach. For some have already turned aside to Satan. Now, we need to ask ourselves an important question here, like what on earth is going on? And here, I'm just going to read a paragraph that I wrote that I think kind of sums it up. What is he talking about here? Because uh, those who think that Paul is talking about some sort of organization of widows that have made a vow of celibacy, and if they turn back on that vow of celibacy, that they, they fall into condemnation, well, that's strong language. That is very strong language. It, it just doesn't seem to fit. So I want to sum it all up with this. First of all, if you look at verse, uh, verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for they feel sensual desire, when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation. Now, if this is a woman, a Christian woman, who has become some part of a of a group of widows in which they've made a vow of celibacy. And then they decide that they want to get married. Then they incur condemnation. And this word condemnation is very strong. It's used primarily with regard to being spiritually and eternally condemned. And so I don't think that this, this fits. Here's what I think's going on. And I've written it this way. By putting younger women on the list, and that is a list of widows who can count on permanent support for the rest of their life. By putting younger women on the list, the church had exposed them to the dangers of an idle lifestyle. Okay, now think about that. They're younger widows. They've been put on a list in which they are promised from the church a permanent status of widowhood and they can be supported and they no longer have to worry about their support. That it, it exposes them to the dangers of an idle lifestyle and unhealthy relationships and improper conversations. Look at verse 13. At the same time, they learn to be idle. They go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. So let me start again. The idea seems to be putting, 
putting younger women on the list, the church had exposed them to the dangers of an idle lifestyle, unhealthy relationships, and improper conversations. This soil had germinated in these women's self-indulgence and sensual desires that had already drawn some of them away from Christ, causing them to marry possibly even unbelievers and leading them into apostasy, even turning aside to follow Satan and final condemnation. So let's go back and look at this verse by verse. First, I said the idea seems to be by putting seems to be by putting younger women on the list. The church had exposed them to the dangers of an idle lifestyle. Verse 13, it says at the same time, they also learn to be idle. They learn it. They've been put in a situation where now they've got time on their hands. They're young and they've learned to be idle. So it's exposed them to the dangers of an idle lifestyle, unhealthy relationships and improper conversations. So look what it says. They go around from house to house and not merely idle. That means doing nothing productive, but they go around from house to house as gossips and busybodies. And this is degenerated into talking about things not proper, unproper things. Things that are contrary to the will of God. And now listen, men, do you understand how this can happen? There's an old saying that, the, you know, idleness is the devil's workshop. So you have women who are going and being with one another. Uh, they're not given to productive or fruitful labor. And they begin to enter into unhealthy relationships and they begin to enter into unhealthy conversations. And then I wrote this soil has germinated self-indulgence and sensual desires. Look at verse six. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even when she lives. So imagine ungodly conversation. Imagine. Uh, younger women coming together and talking about their singleness, their loneliness, uh, their inward desires, and then on and on, it just begins to break down. This soil had germinated self-indulgence and sensual desires that had drawn some of them away from Christ, causing them to marry even possibly unbelievers and leading them into apostasy. Look at verse 11 but refuse to put younger women on the list for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. Now, wanting to get married is, is not a bad thing. It's not something that's done in disregard of Christ. So something bigger is going on here than simply they just want to be married. It's they're wanting to be married out of motives, and in a way that is contrary to Christ. The Greek word here for sensual desires in disregard of is the idea of self-indulgence in opposition to something or someone. It's self and their, their desire to marry is the result of self-indulgence in opposition to Christ. So something's going on here in which 
through their idleness, through their visiting one another house to house, they become busybodies, they become gossips, and they begin to involve themselves in conversations that are not proper, that's sometimes used with regard to gross sin, to do that which is unseeming. And it says in verse 13 that some of them already had turned aside to Satan. They had completely apostatized. And so that's what I believe is going on here. And I believe it falls in line also with what Paul talks about earlier about women being saved within the context of a family and family obligations. Okay? Now, I want us to go to 1 Timothy 2.15 for a minute. And I want you to look at 1 Timothy 2.15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now compare verse 15 with verse 13 of chapter 5. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. So this is degraded into a sensual desire, a self-indulgence, where they want to get married in a way that is contrary or in opposition to Christ. It's not in opposition to some vow. It's in opposition to the will of Christ, the purpose of marriage, and the things leading up to marriage. Now, I want you to think about something. I want us to combine a couple of things here. And I want you to go to Titus chapter two, verse three, and just hold your place there. And I wanna put several things together. In 1 Timothy 5, 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Now, what's the cure for that? He wants them to marry, right? Now, look at verse 15 of chapter 2. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with proper restraint. What it's talking about is a woman's salvation, not just her justification, but her sanctification is more properly achieved in the context of God's plan for her life. And it wasn't God's plan for younger women just to be remain single, be supported, put on a list where they remain idle and they fall into all sorts of foolishness, which leads to sin, which can even lead to apostasy. But instead, he wants in verse 14 of chapter five for younger women for younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. That falls light, right in line with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. But it also falls right in line with Titus chapter 2, 
Verse three, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. Remember, they were gossips, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. It seems the relationship between wine and people getting together in unfruitful fellowship and unfruitful discussion, you could see how that could also be a part of what's going on in First Timothy. That it's just a fellowship and a conversation degrading and degrading as a result of idleness. And it turns into marrying outside of the will of God and even in some cases apostasy, which Paul even calls, you know, turning themselves over to Satan. But in contrast to that, we have Titus chapter two, verse three. It says verse four, so that chapter chapter two, verse four, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And remember back over in first Timothy, it was about that the church be above reproach that everything be done above reproach. What Paul is saying, it's not that a woman who is uh, 50 or 40, who has been widowed, must get remarried, and certainly not really quick. The idea of what he's saying is that the best context for the growth of piety in womanhood is within the context of the family. They were having a situation in the church where widows were being supported, but some of those widows were young, which if you know anything about first century, a lot of people died young, a lot of men died young. So you had widows and they're young and they're put on a support system. But instead of benefiting from it, they grow idle. And in growing idle, they fall into unbiblical fellowship and conversation, and it causes some of them to even apostatize. And Paul is saying, no, don't do that. Don't put people in a situation like that. And we do this quite frequently, not just in this case, but we also do the same thing with children, don't we? We always want to make life easy for someone. And sometimes when we do that, we're doing greater harm then we're doing good. And I think that's what's going on in this passage. And I think that we need to be very, very careful. The world today will tell a woman, don't marry, follow a profession. They'll tell young men, don't marry, follow a profession. That in itself leads to immorality. And immorality, even if in the end there's marriage, will usually result in conflict within the marriage and breaking that marriage apart. The best context, not just for women, but for men to grow in godliness is in the context of a biblical family. One man committed to one woman and both of them united together, giving their lives to their children. That is the best context for piety. The worst context for piety is idleness. Simply being idle with much time on your hands and nothing pious or holy to do with it. Now, I want us to go back for just a moment to 1 Timothy 5, and I just want to look at a few things that are very important. Uh, start with honor widows who are widows indeed, verse 3. 
And uh, this is not only with regard to financial support, but it's recognizing their value, their worth before God, and trying to discern what are their needs, how do you organize the church in order to meet those needs. Verse four, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, I want you to look at something here. In the first century, parents took care of children, but there came a time when the parents were too old to even take care of themselves and the children then make a return. Now, in many cases, that's not required in our society because our parents have retirement or they have a way of taking care of themselves or there's some social system that helps them. So if you're a Christian and your parents are in need, financial need, and you're a young man who's now working, you're responsible to help them. But if your parents are quite wealthy and need nothing from you financially, it doesn't mean that they don't need you. It doesn't mean that they don't need fellowship with you or kindnesses from you or love from you. Okay, now another thing that is very, very important is, well, we'll go on and touch that later. Verse five, now she who is a widow indeed and has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Now, this is, of course, not literal that someone is on their knees before God in entreaties and prayers night and day. But there is a sense of praying without ceasing and there is a sense of a constant need of God. And what I want you to see here is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. This is a mark of piety and you need to ask yourself as a pastor, does this describe you? Have you fixed your hope on God and are you continuing in entreaties and prayers night and day? This is a mark of true piety for all Christians, not just widows. Do you live a life of hope in God? One of the things I've always said is uh, it was an exceptional gift that God didn't make me that intelligent. It was an exceptional gift that God did not give me in some ways a, a better education. I'm always cast upon him. I'm always cast upon him. And I know that if he does not help, that there is no hope. The weaker that you see yourself, the more you're going to cast yourself upon God. And if you truly cast yourself upon God, your life is going to be one of constant entreaty and petition. Sometimes I hate that I can't make it through the day without almost constantly praying in my car, in the office, on my knees, in my home. It's sometimes, you know, Lord, but it's a gift to be so weak that you know you have your only hope in God. And your only connection to that hope is his word and prayer. And he goes on. 
But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Now here's something that's very important. Verse seven, prescribe, is in a present tense imperative indicating always go on prescribing and commanding these things. Now he's saying to do that with regard to widows and the church's responsibility to those widows. Yet how much teaching is done in the New Testament church today with regard to this matter? Also, I think it's important, it says, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. It says, prescribe these things as well, as well as everything else he's written here. These commands that we've studied with regard to widows and other needy people in the church are just as important as the other commands in 1 Timothy. It's all part of the will of God, and you have no right to overlook this matter any more than you have a right to overlook what was said in chapter four about preaching. He goes on and he says, verse eight, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, this is not just talking about fathers to their and husbands to their wives and children. Because we see in verse four that children also have a responsibility to the household when they get older to take care of their parents in need if necessary. This is very, very neglected. Is that when you take upon yourself the responsibility of a wife, you take upon your responsibility to care for her and to care for her children and even to care for her parents, if, if so, if it's necessary. We are called upon, you know, everyone today is talking about there's no men in the world. Well, that may be pretty true. Um, but then when they talk about what a man is, they beat their chest and, and pull out a gun and uh, talk about how good they are at jujitsu. But that's, those things are all wonderful, but that's not a man either. A man is a person who assumes the responsibility. When there's a burden to carry, he carries it. When there's somebody violent and dangerous at the door, he's the one who goes to the door. If someone has to stay up all night, he's the one who stays up all night. If someone has to wash feet, he's the one who washes the feet. A dear friend of mine, Bob Jennings, that's gone home to be with the Lord, his dad and him uh, back years and years ago when we still used horses to pull logs and things like that, they were pulling logs across this frozen lake. And uh, his dad was pulling the log train all by himself. So it was a sled, logs, uh, probably a team of at least four horses hooked to it. And they're about across the lake and all of a sudden the lake broke through the ice and the sleigh was going into the water and it was pulling the horses in. It was way below zero and I mean zero Fahrenheit. So minus, you know, 20 degrees outside Celsius or whatever. And his dad jumped in the water, took out his knife cut all the leather uh, harness off of the horses, swam through, got them out of the water, 
took them to the barn. He got all the water off of them, toweled all the water off of them, bedded them, fed them, and then he went in the house a couple hours later with his whole body, his clothes were frozen, his hair was frozen and everything. He did not go in the house first. He took care of his horses. That's a man. It's not a guy who fights MMA. It's not a guy who can bench 400 pounds. It's a man who is always going to assume the responsibility, carry the burden, stand out front, wash the feet, serve. He's going to stand when he has to. He's going to fight against evil, but he's just a man of conviction that has made himself a servant. And, and I, I wanted to bring that up here. Verse eight, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith. So when COVID hit and everyone was worried about money, preachers were getting on and saying, you need to realize that you still need to give to this ministry or you'll be in disobedience and all this type of stuff. I got online, I, I made a film and I said this, no, if you can't support heart cry, you have not sinned. Your first responsibility is to take care of your family. That's your first responsibility, even above church. Your first responsibility is to take care of your family. Then it's to take care of your local church and especially the ministers within that local church. And if you cannot give the missions after that, you have not sinned. Do you see? It's taking care of first things in our life. It's doing those simple rock solid foundational things. That's what you do. That's what you do. So let, let's go on. Verse nine, a widow is to be. Oh, and another thing, it says in verse eight, he's worse than an unbeliever. Guys, part of this right here in verse eight, it's either pride or laziness. One of the two on the part of men. When you get married, your wife. In one in one sense, becomes your life, taking care of her, not running with the boys. Not going to football games, not hanging out, not going to the bar, not doing all these things, not running around and playing video games with the boys. It's taking care of your family. It's sacrificing for your family. It's working and laboring for your family. You get up before they get up, you put them to bed and you're still going. You serving your wife, you serving your children. That's what it's about. We die tired. Men die tired. Not self-indulged. And to live it any other way, guys, it's just not the Christian life. It's not the Christian life. Verse nine, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the feet of saints, if she has assisted those in distress and if she has devoted herself to every good work. This is a description of feminine piety. And it's the direct opposite of what the world says today. 
And you're going to see more and more as we teach scripture, we're going to have a temptation to not want to put these things forward. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, of course, women can be educated extraordinarily. Of course, they can, you know, God's will for them can be very varied. But to despise family life, to despise marriage, to despise being a servant in the context of a family. For men or women is totally contrary to scripture. Here we have a woman. She hasn't conquered armies. She hasn't won countries to Christ. She's not a great preacher of the gospel. But we see this. She's being set up as a demonstration of true piety and what it looks like to be in the will of God. We are so sometimes geared on the fact that we're going to be judged for our ministry, and that's true. But more importantly, we'll be judged for our life, how we lived. We're also worried about, you know, can this person, can people out preach me? We should be worried about can people outlive me? Not how intelligent they are compared to us, but are we godly? Are we doing the simple things of Christianity? That's what's important. And yes, you have men like the Apostle Paul who were single and celibate, and I praise God for him. But if you're married, God wants you to use your marriage and your family as an example of Christian piety. And it's not to be despised. So he goes on and he says, but refuse in verse 11 to put younger women on the list for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Now, here's something that I want you to see for all of us. And this is just. This is in here, but I'm going further than the text. I just want to talk to you young men about certain things. First of all, do not despise the fact that you have to work hard. Idleness is extremely dangerous. And when you do take breaks, take them with your wife, take them with your children, take them with your family. And, and be very, very careful when when men of God talk about remaining pure, they're always talking about, you know, what not to do, how to build certain walls, how to keep yourself separate and all that's necessary. But there's one thing that we don't talk enough about. If you want to avoid the temptations of this world and avoid the temptations, especially of uh, of, of what we would call immorality or, or, or lust. Then it's not just building up barricades against these things, it's cultivating your relationship with your wife and children. The more you are bound to your wife and the more you've learned to delight in her, the less you're going to want to delight in someone else. The more that you're bound to your children and delight in them, the more protected you are to not fall into immorality. I believe what's going on here is these young women have been given idle time and with that idle time, they're destroying themselves. Another thing that you need to see that is very, very important. Be careful who you're fellowshipping with. 
You don't want to fellowship with people. Well, let me put it this way. As ministers, you're going to be constantly working with the immature. And, and that's that's what you're supposed to do. And that's a wonderful thing. But you need to have people in your life that challenge you. People that are older than you, people that are wiser than you, people that are more holy than you. So that it, so that it's iron sharp and iron. When you get out of a day of ministry, you don't want to run over. You don't want to run over to people who are, you know, even your peers. I mean, even. My goodness, get a telephone call right in the middle of the message. You don't want to hang around men who are going to make you less of a man. There are certain people that I can go be with, and when I'm with them, I leave them wanting to be more holy. I leave them wanting to be more noble. I leave them wanting to read my Bible more, wanting to pray more. I leave them seeing deficiencies in my life where I need to improve. Those are the kind of people you want to be around. And you need to find older men like that, that challenge you. If you take a bunch of 11 year old boys and put them all together in a room and keep them there for several years, they're probably not going to mature very much because all they've ever done is looked in the eyes of other 11 year boys. You want to put them in a room with men so that they grow up to be men. In the same way, you need to find men more than something online. That when you're with them, they challenge you. They challenge you and you want to you want to return to your home a better man. Let me see if there's anything left here. Verse 14. I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Today, you were to read that in the public arena. People would have your head. Now, I will grant you there are some people who would teach this passage in a in a in a manner that would make it more confining than it than it is. I think what it's saying is. The ideal place for all of us, with the exception of those who have been gifted with the gift of celibacy. The ideal place for all of us is with our wife and our children. And to grow in that context, to be challenged in that context. We read this, we think only about women need to get married and bear children. Well, women can't get married without a man and they can't bear children without a man. What applies to the woman applies to us. We have, we're growing up in an age where the family is utterly and totally despised. Why? Because it is a part of God's plan. And it's the place where not only church members, but us as pastors and ministers also grow. You know, my life would be so much easier if I'd never married. If we as a husband and wife never had children. You know, logically, you can sit there and go, there would have been so much more time for ministry and other things. But it is through the blessing and the conflict of marriage 
the blessing and the conflict of children that we grow. Before I was uh, married, you know, all I wanted to be was the Apostle Paul of the Andes, you know, and get martyred as fast as possible. Um, man, I tell you what, before I got married, I was so spiritual. I was amazing. <laughs> man, when I got married, I saw that I was not a spiritual man. I was a selfish boy. So when we look at this and say, yeah, women need to get married. Most men need to get married. Women need to have children. Yeah, I believe that if they can. And uh, men need to have children. Women need to be in the home. Well, men need to be in the home. One time I was asked, someone says, you know, why don't you go to lunch with us? You know, you, you always work through lunch. Why do you go to lunch? Why don't you go to lunch with us? And I say, because you're, my wife's prettier than you. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, if I'm gonna take some free time out, I'm not gonna take it with you or the boys. I got married, so I don't have to hang around the boys anymore. I got a wife to hang around. And if you feel differently than that, then you probably just need to be slapped. Yeah, you probably just need to be slapped. You have a wife. You have children. All right. They're a gift. So you guys need to go home and you need to love them. And don't tell me you're tired. You bunch of millennials, don't tell me you're tired. What are you guys, 30 years old or something? I got shoes older than you. I'm 61 and I have a seven year old daughter. You're tired? So you, you get home and you spend time with your family. You get up early to get your work done for the Lord. He takes precedent, but you also get up early so that you can be with your family. And you say, well, I'm tired, Brother Paul. And I say, welcome to the man club. All right. All right. Well, God bless you guys. I love you. Hope to see you. Um, I'm doing better physically. Uh, you can tell because I'm getting meaner and uh, uh, I'm getting. <laughs> yeah, my wife tells me she's going to have to hit me more with her sandal or frying pan or something. But um, so I look forward, hopefully, to seeing you. And, and David, I need to stay. Uh, I need to really be on top of this issue with the building and, uh, and everything. Well, well, God bless you guys. Let me pray. Yeah. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for these men. And I pray that you would bless them and strengthen them and help them. Oh, dear God, please raise up young men so much more virtuous, so much stronger in the spirit than the previous generation. 
Oh God, let them excel us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.